Welcome to Investments Unplugged. Before we get started, this commentary is for general information purposes only, and clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Thank you, and listen on. I have no idea. He just he had the quote that I wanted to use. That's quotes. it. That's exactly. It. <laughs> and I made this up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> more interesting aspects of what we do is that often our clients will ask us questions on just about anything. In addition to the capital markets, we will receive questions on politics, demographics, investor behavior, household balance sheets, government debt, disruptive technologies, and so on. And while we endeavor to do as much research on as many topics as we can, the heart of our work revolves around answering the question, where do we make money? And while some of the topics strike a passionate tone with investors, they are not always relevant to an investment strategy. And with other questions, we simply don't have the answers. So we often refer to this quote by Arthur C. Clarke. I don't pretend to have all the answers, but the questions are certainly worth thinking about. We've been fielding a number of questions around the current coronavirus and its potential impact on the Chinese economy, global economy, equity, and fixed income markets. And the capital market strategy team at Manulife Investment Management has been doing a lot of work on what it may mean. The hard truth is that while there are some similarities to viral outbreaks in the past, there are no good parallels to what we are experiencing today. In most reports I have read, the immediate comparison to this coronavirus is the SARS outbreak in 2003. Yet we would argue the economic and market comparisons are far from perfect and therefore we need to look to a collection of events in the past in order to put together a plausible explanation for this future. Listen on. This is Investments Unplugged. Welcome to Investments Unplugged. I am your host, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist with Manulife Investment Management. And joining me today are my colleagues, Kevin Hedlund and Makan Nia. Welcome, Jais. Gentlemen, welcome, Jice. gentlemen. Well, Good afternoon. Yeah. It's when you want to say two things this at the is same the time. Day after the Super Bowl party, so exactly continues to slur his words. Yes, well, you know, in celebration of the Kansas City Chiefs winning. Yay, there we go. Okay, so a lot of questions we've been receiving over the last couple of weeks have revolved around this virus that originated in the Wuhan district in China and its impact on the global economy and what it means for investors. So we're going to explore this a little bit deeper. I'll set it up right now. There is no good answer, but we can look to history as a guide through a number of other events to suggest what might happen and therefore also suggest what we might want to do with respect to our portfolios. But before we get to that, we're going to talk about what you need to know. Kevin, what is your what you need to know? Given the recent market volatility uh, stemming from, of course, that coronavirus, it made me start to think uh, about the debate between robo-advisors and self-directed investing um, and financial advisors. Uh, it is during bouts of volatility, or at least an increase in volatility, that do-it-yourself investors are at risk of making ill-advised decisions to sell and get out of that market. A robo-advisor is not calling clients to talk them through the headline news. Two recent surveys were done regarding Canadians' desire for human interaction or advice when it comes to their finances. Uh, together with the Strategic Council, the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada, or IROC, surveyed more than 2,000 current investors as well as aspiring investors, or those who are interested in but not currently investing. The majority said access means getting advice when and how they want it through a single point of contact, preferably a human. 
90% of current investors and 71% of aspiring investors want access to financial advice they need and want when they need it and want it. 91% of current investors and 69% of aspiring investors said it's important that the advice they receive is personalized to their goals and needs. Yet only 40% of current investors and 30% of aspiring investors consider online advice based purely on the information they provide to be personalized. 74% of current investors and 62% of aspiring investors said they need financial advice to come from a human. The percentage of Canadian investors who say it is important that advice be delivered by a human increase with age, with 82% of seniors, those aged 65 and above, value advice from a human. CIBC actually conducted a similar survey and found that when it comes to financial advice, 46% of Canadians prefer to ask an advisor through their financial institution and 36% turn to family and friends. Only 20% of respondents prefer to go online only. Of course, there's a famous study, uh, a Cyrano study. They look at the gamma factor or the value of financial advice. And they came up with some startling uh, results. 290% more uh, assets for those clients with an advisor for 15 years or more. So noticeably, their growth rate of their asset base is quite much stronger with an advisor than without. And I think really what you need to know is that despite the belief that the desire for human financial advice is going away, it is simply not true. There is obviously an increase in the use of robo-advisors or self-directed investments, but those that go it alone need to remember that when markets start to get bumpy, there's nobody to keep them on track to those financial goals. We've had conversations about this um, internally amongst the group. The ads that make it sound so simple, that it's all about fees, is just, to me, cringeworthy. I mean, it's not. It's, it's about, you know, fee is only one thing, but to the study of that report, Advisors help you build better habits. They help avoid mistakes. They help manage portfolios to be more tax efficient so you can retain more of what you earn. Uh, They help clients actually set goals uh, and they set a proper asset allocation based on those goals as opposed to, as I've seen with with going online to check out some of these uh, robo-advisors, which portfolio do you want, A, B, or C? And, and good luck if your situation is a little bit different and forget about tax consequences and forget about what you have at work through various plans and so on. It's, I, I think it's to an individual's detriment to only focus on a low-cost fee, whatever that is, regardless of what comes with it, meaning you know, what kind of, kind of advice are you missing? And, and so I think these studies just speak to the heart of, of what we already know, which is it's more than just a number. A financial advisor provides a holistic financial advice. It's not just about how to make money with your investments. It's not just about that. It's planning for goals, the, regardless of what those are, but also your, your overall health and not just your wealth, uh, insurance. There's so many other aspects, tax, as you mentioned, uh, to a, a holistic financial uh, plan uh, that uh, there really it's lost in just, you know, filling in boxes uh, on a survey or something online. And I think we want to make sure that, you know, while fees are, uh, are and can be an issue, we can't get uh, lost in the fact that with value comes a fee. You know, in everything in life, there's a value ascribed to a fee and you have to determine what you want to pay for that, uh, that fee. Malkon, you're what you need to know. As of time of recording, the Democratic midterm elections are coming up. The first one, the Iowa caucuses. So my what you need to know is about demographic shifts and the upcoming U.S. election. And there's five major shifts that are occurring that are not 
only going to impact the upcoming election, but elections to come. So number one is the liberal youth revolution. What we've seen is millennials and Gen Zs are sticking with the Democratic Party, no surprise there, and they continue to st- uh, stick with them throughout their adulthood. They're, liberal, uh, they're embracing things like liberalism or AOC socialism. The only issue for the Democrats is getting these individuals to the polls and getting them to the polls going forward. Now, things to watch is Bernie Sanders is actually leading the youth vote candidate. He spends more than half of his money or Facebook ad money targeting the 15 to 24-year-old. And after that, it's Michael Bloomberg who spends a lot of his advertising dollars at, on that demographic. The second demographic shift is basically older generations uh, growing voter power. And this is all as a result of an increase in life expectancy. So they're no longer dying off in your 70s, 75s. You're living into your hundreds, and that's having impacts on the Electoral College. And we know generally individuals, as they get older, they're more conservative in terms of how they vote. And more importantly, from really in terms of how they spend those dollars as well. They're obviously more affluent than the younger generation, Zed or millennials, and they contribute much more to political parties. And when you look at who's leading the charge in this one, it's actually Elizabeth Warren and President Trump who get the majority of their campaign dollars from retirees. The third demographic is a shrinking white America. So America's majority minority future has elevated basically politics and immigration. And for the first time in 2020, Uh, Hispanic voters will make up the majority of the electoral largest minority group. And since 2010, basically non-Hispanic white people have lost their majority in 32 states. And we're going to see, so today, basically, Texas and Nevada have majority minorities for the first time since 2000. The fourth one, and this goes back to the demographics, is, you know what, and this is anywhere, to be honest, but the world is urbanizing, which is bringing housing, healthcare, transportation costs to the forefront. And we know middle America is in a downward spiral. And as the overall population grows, the percentage of Americans living in these urban areas is rising faster. There's basically been 46, so America's today what? 330 million. There's been an act where a translation of 46 million people from rural to urban areas in really the last 15 years. So it just shows you the shift from that perspective. And last but not least is religion's dying and maybe i should uh, give some context to that is that around a quarter of americans are now unaffiliated with a religion as a white christian population which is largely republican and that continues to decline and in 2018 41 percent of the population identified themselves as white and christian down 15 points uh from 2018 so when you take all these five things together so basically the liberal youth revolution older people getting older and not dying, a shrinking white America, the great rural exodus and dying religion, this is going to have an impact on, especially in a two-party system in the U.S. where there's not a lot of choice. Uh, these trends will be uh, defining factors, not only in 2020, but in the next 10 to 15 years. So, Morgan, does that tell us anything in terms of expectations uh, on how how things are going to pull obviously it shifts what's most important to these individuals and that guides them to uh who they're going to vote for does that are are we seeing a shift then in u.s politics where i i don't want to be so bold as to say uh call it but hey call it i'm not calling anything (laughs) if i learned anything from three years ago is politics is not our forte ultimately we're all aware of these I think when it comes down to politics is taking advantage of these shifts and 
frankly, getting people out to vote. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, mobilizing the, the, the voting, your, your base to vote is, is key here. Uh, I think we saw it with President Obama. There's a lot of uh, disenfranchised who came out to vote for him for change. And I think on the other side, when President Trump was elected, his base came out in, in waves to vote as well, who probably or possibly hadn't voted before. So it's all about who shows up on Election Day. Um, and I think that ends up uh, swaying uh, the vote and, and where the votes come from, which uh, electorate. Yeah, and they also have the Electoral College, which is different. If this was just based on essentially the popular vote, we know the country is uh, basically urbanizing. And as a result, this should shift to Democrats. But because of the Electoral College, it doesn't necessarily work out that way. All right. So I'm going to jump ahead. My what you need to know actually is the whole subject of this episode. And it's on the coronavirus and the potential impact that we could see with respect to uh, the Chinese economy, how that could spread to the global economy, what it means for the market. So we'll get to that in just a second. Welcome back to Investments Unplugged. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the impact of the coronavirus or Wuhan virus, uh, the virus that is spreading very rapidly through China uh, and starting to, uh, in a much smaller scale, impact other areas around the world at time of recording. We've got, I believe it's about 17,000 confirmed cases in China. Uh, What's quite interesting is as I've looked at it, it looks like the number of confirmed cases is doubling every other day. Now, we would expect that to start to slow down at some point as the Chinese have done a, uh, it would appear a good job of containing this. If we've learned anything from other outbreaks and we'd go back to SARS, it was a six-month ordeal from beginning to end. And so what we want to do is try and answer the question what this means. Now, again, we have to be careful about this because we're not in the medical profession. We often say to individuals when they ask us these esoteric questions about something that is going on that I would argue is beyond our expertise and beyond the expertise of, of the majority of peers that I work with, we don't know. All we can do is look to history as some type of a guide. In this case, there isn't any one particular point in time that we would say, yes, that is like what we're seeing now. You know, we could talk about the Spanish flu in, in the early 1900s, the 19-teens, or 1917, 1918. That was a different situation being at the end of World War One, where, you know, it spread very quickly through through the ranks. And and uh, I would say healthcare wasn't the same then as it is today. Hygiene wasn't the same then as it is today. Food preparation wasn't the same then as it is today. So there's very different circumstances around that and what we see today. And even with the immediate comparison to SARS in 2003, I would argue that's very different. But Makan, you wanted to touch on uh, how the, the coronavirus or a virus of this type is different than what we would see in terms of the standard influenza virus that that works its way around populations every single year yeah so probably many listening to this myself included had the view of we place such a big emphasis on coronavirus and fatality rates yet we all know the common flu in the u.s for example kills thousands of people so what's the big deal so i was asking this of uh friends this weekend who are doctors and they pointed out three things that are different that we shouldn't be making the comparison between the common flu and coronavirus because it is very different so yeah there's 20,000 roughly individuals that die from the common flu but when you look at that case fatality rate it's basically 0.1 percent 
And when you compare it to coronavirus today, and these are, I'm going to say these numbers are conservative, it's 3%. So 0.1% versus 3%. So obviously the case fatality rate uh, for coronavirus is a lot higher. That's why we pay very close attention to this. Number two is they call it r not in more simplistic terms. It's just basically how easy it spreads. So I'm going to talk about it in units terms. So the common flu from this r not spectrum is a one3 Coronavirus is anywhere between two and a half and three and a half based on the numbers that we know today. So it's much more easy to spread and it also has a higher fatality rate. And then last but not least, they call it the serious complication rate. And basically what that means is the likelihood of you having to be in an ICU bed uh, if you were infected by this. And for the flu, it's less than 1%. Uh, for coronavirus, it's 20%. So when we talk about, yeah, 20,000 people die of the flu, well, when you take that in consideration, if that was coronavirus, it would be in multiples of that because A, it's much more fatal, B, it's much more easier to spread, and even if you don't die, those serious complication rates are much higher than the common flu. So that's why the markets, that's why world leaders, World Health Organization do pay close attention to these type of uh, viruses because if they were to spread on the level of the common flu, it would be much, much more severe and so on that you know it it brings about the other question of saying is SARS a good comparable what we saw with SARS was it was it, it seemed that it wasn't as contagious in that the number of reported cases for SARS is half what we have today versus the coronavirus um, yet the mortality rate was a lot higher. The mortality rate for SARS was about 10%. Now, you know, here's, here's where the challenge is in trying to compare what we have today versus then. Reporting could be completely different. Reporting of, uh, of, of actual cases could be understated for SARS. China was very different in 2003 than it is today. It wasn't anywhere near as urbanized as it is today. We saw massive urbanization of China over the last 20 years. That would involve also massive infrastructure investment in terms of hospitals, uh, medical care, and so on. And so it, this is where the, the real challenge lies. It's like, okay, well, what is the real number of SARS? Is it as reported? And perhaps it is, uh, in which case that would imply that this virus is far more contagious than what, it, what SARS was, yet has a much lower mortality rate. You mentioned 3%. I'm saying, you know, somewhere between 2 and 3. And it seems to be, you know, along those lines. It hasn't gotten worse over the past couple of weeks. But that then begs the question of, okay, let's look at some of the other comparables. And is the SARS outbreak a reasonable comparable for what we could expect today? There's two things. And I think Kev pointed out last week is Wuhan is a city with the population of New York. And if you look at where Wuhan is in China, it's literally central China. If you look at kind of like that hub and spoke mentality, it is the hub of the transportation, not only flights, train. And that goes to the other issue is this is probably the worst time for this to happen for the Chinese government because it is Chinese New Year. And there's estimates of two to three hundred million people that are in flux during this two week period or three week period. SARS was a little bit earlier than that. From the very beginning, I don't think it's kind of fair to compare the two because the impact of people moving is much different. Yeah, just put some some stats around that. Uh, uh, some people say Wuhan is like the uh, Chicago. If you know, if you're thinking about uh, the type of situation where it's really at the uh, the end of the tributaries and, and how it, it is uh, used as a as that hub, uh, Wuhan's GDP growth was seven point eight percent in 2019. 
essentially 1.7 percentage points higher than the national average. Total value of imports and exports reached 244 billion won or 35 billion US dollars last year. A record high that was 13.7% above the previous year and count, accounted for 61.9% of Hubei's province's overall foreign trade value. So, of course, Wuhan is in the Hubei province. Also, to put in context of the amount of uh, global companies that have a presence in Wuhan, more than 300 of the world's top 500 companies have a presence in the city, including Microsoft, German-based software company SAP, and French car manufacturer group PSA. So it's definitely, um, you know, the access of, of not only Chinese companies, but the, the foreign companies and multinationals that have presence not just in China, but also in, in Wuhan, is way different than it was in, you know, in 2003. In 2003, China was not as important to the global economy as it is today. 100%. Uh, it was a much smaller proportionately and on a relative basis to the United States, for example. So forget about just the size of the Chinese economy because we've seen massive growth from it. It's now the second largest economy in the world. Its economy is roughly about two-thirds the size of the U.S. economy, but growing at probably three times the pace. But let's look at China and how it impacted the global economy then. If China slows down, yes, it, the, it brings the average down. But in 2003, did it really impact the global economy? And when we look at GDP in the United States, the answer is no. If we look at GDP to other countries, the answer is no. However, today I would argue there is and can be a much more meaningful impact with a slowdown in China to the United States, to Europe, and to other areas. So if we just look at it from an export perspective, in 2003, if you look at the global export market, China was 4.2%. That today is 10.5%, right? So 10.5% of global exports originate in China, which is equivalent to the U.S. So imagine if the U.S. shut down its export capacity in some form, what that would mean to Canada, what that would mean to Europe, what it would mean to their export partners. So here's what we are seeing with China, where it might be a finished good, it might be earlier than the finished goods process. And so if we start to see exports slowing down as a result of this, which we already know Wuhan is basically restricting travel, China's restricting travel, air travel, uh, train travel, and so on, um, encouraging people to work from home. Uh, Starbucks has shut down its, its stores. So we're seeing a disruption of the, the on-the-ground business that will have some disruption to other uh, businesses along the global supply chain. However, we need to carefully define this. I define it as a disruption to the economy, not destructive to the economy. And the difference being a permanent impairment of the economy. Uh, so when asked, what do you mean by that? I say, well, if you look at the collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2008, that was a permanent destruction right? That the, their lending ability, their business function was gone. It wasn't delayed and came back in a quarter or two. It was gone and gone forever. In this case, it's much more, at least today, it would seem that it's much more a disruption to economic activity. However, given the importance of China in terms of the global export market, uh, given the importance of China to the global commodity market, this disruption is going to be felt beyond its own borders. Even when you look at China back in 2003, China as a share of global GDP was roughly 9%. Today, it's closer to 
the manufacturing actually hasn't changed that much. When you look at its manufacturing share of GDP, it's basically been in that back then was 29%, today it's 32 But what's the carryover effects? Because we all know that 40% of the S&P 500 earnings are directly linked to manufacturing. And if you have the manufacturing hub in China slow down, which will impact manufacturing globally. Again, but I agree with you. Is it going to be destructive for earnings? No, it's going to be disruptive for earnings in the very near term. What we can relate from SARS uh, is that during the SARS outbreak, we did see the Chinese economy slow down in the first quarter, but it was met with a a pretty strong recovery uh, in the following quarters. And so this is the the next step, right? So it's a... when else have we seen a disruption in local or global economies uh, that could suggest what we might see in this environment? And so I would say that we've seen something like this in a couple other occasions. Um, and we have to look beyond health scares, right? I've seen the chart. You've seen the chart. I think we, we've shown the chart where we look at what happened during the AIDS epidemic, what happened during Ebola, what happened during other types of health scares. I would say those are the wrong things to look at. They weren't as disruptive economically as SARS was or as this will be as we're seeing this now. So a couple other things that I looked at. One was uh, Snowmageddon in 2014 where the U.S. suffered a colder than average winter with greater than average snowfall deep into the south. And what we saw here in the first quarter of 2014 was actually a contraction in U.S. GDP. Why? Well, people didn't want to get in their cars. They didn't want to drive on the roads when the roads were covered with snow. I remember Atlanta was shut down because they didn't have snow-moving equipment and cars were just abandoned on the highway. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was, it was uh, something to be seen. And, and so this was something that was going to have an impact on U.S. GDP in the first quarter of 2014. We knew that, but it was also pent-up demand. It was something that would remedy itself in the following quarter. And that's what we saw too. Second quarter, GDP rebounded quite sharply. So on average, it, was, it, it all balanced itself out. The other one I would, I would point to was uh, Fukushima. In 2013, in the first quarter of, of uh, 2013, Japan suffered a um, uh, tsunami that wiped out or, or caused significant uh, destruction to uh, the Fukushima nuclear power plant, um, and they effectively had to rebuild. Uh, we saw the same thing. Now, the market there suffered a drop of about 11%, as I recall. Uh, we did not see as sharp a recovery in the stock market, but here, too, I think there were other things going on. We saw you know, a, a mid-cycle slowdown globally. We saw issues with debt in, um, in Europe. Uh, but following, following that first quarter, we saw a very sharp rebound in the second quarter in Japan. So there are other events that we've seen that have been disruptive to global economic growth, to local economic growth. And in those cases, we saw a pretty sharp rebound. We can only uh, only assume today that we would see the same thing. If not, maybe even one could argue is this might be even more material than a nuclear power plant going down. If this was to continue spreading, this would have, and given China's role in the global economy, this sure. could in the short term have a bigger impact than Snowmageddon and the Fukushima. Absolutely. I, I don't argue with that at all. I think it will have an impact. I think it'll have an impact to Chinese GDP in the first quarter, if not the first half of the year. Commodities. I think it'll have, we're seeing the impact of commodities now with copper prices having rolled off from, from around 285 a pound to mid 250s a pound. Um, 
we will see, I think, some economic impact in terms of, of the U.S., you know, how this could impact potentially U.S. manufacturing, how this is going to impact uh, South Korean manufacturing, Japanese manufacturing. My thought, though, is this is going to be temporary, and we could expect a rebound of economic growth in the back half of 2020. Again, it is subject to how, how bad, how deep, how widespread this reaches. If, if it is the better case scenario and it is contained within this quarter, then I think it just leads us to expectations of a rebound of economic activity next quarter. There's another also aspect of it is how well global governments are um, uh, able to protect or their own economies or perhaps stimulate economic growth. And you look at monetary policy, uh, again, much different from other uh, times when we had uh, issues around the world, whether it be uh, uh, SARS or uh, the two uh, instances you you alluded to there, Philip. Uh, But right now you look at China, their debt to GDP is twice as large as it was in 2003. Uh, GDP growth is about half. Um, and, of course, trend U.S. and European growth is much weaker as well, uh, and those monetary policies are weak. So uh, there's less uh, ability, perhaps, to stimulate or protect economic growth, and therefore um, this shock could last longer. It might not be as deep, but it could last longer. We might not see uh, a recovery as fast as we might have seen in other instances. One actual big difference between China back then, 2003 and 2020, is the service sector. So when you take retail, banking, hotels, education, go down the list, during SARS, it was roughly 45% of the economy. Today, it's 62%. So how that impacts from a short-term perspective is think about all the service-based companies in the S&P that have exposure to China that have closed down operations. And you would think that they would have a short-term impact on their earnings. And I think you said it the best, Philip, is that when we take a step back, is this going to be destructive or is it going to be disruptive? And if it's going to be disruptive, that just speaks to me as a, from an investment perspective as an opportunity for those that may have cash on the sidelines who may be underweight equities that if we get a material sell-off uh, because of a weaker earnings environment in the first half of the year, that's likely to rebound in the second half of the year and take advantage of that weakness uh, if the market gives it to you. And we saw that already in the United States at the end of January. We had a pretty healthy sell-off. Now, beginning of February, that has rebounded. We did see when, once the markets opened up after the Lunar New Year holidays in China, they were down uh, just about 8%. And it remains to be seen how long this, this volatility will continue and what kind of opportunities will open up. And that's, that takes us to the next part, which is, okay, so if we, if we have a reasonable expectation that this is going to be disruptive to the economy over the next quarter or two, followed by a rebound, be that pent-up demand, be that business returning to uh, back to normal, and on a quarter-over-quarter basis, it's going to look a lot stronger. What does that mean for the markets? So here, too, if we look at 2003, it's a different environment. In 2003, we were towards the tail end of the tech rec bear market. And so when I look at it, I characterize 2003 as the double bottom to the S&P 500. But there were other things at play. First, we, we mentioned that China was not as important to the U.S. economy or the global economy in 2003 as it is today. So we can suggest that it didn't have an impact to the S&P 500 at all in the first half of 2003. What was impacting the S&P 500 in the first half of 2003 was the potential for the Iraq war. 
The U.S. was getting ready, mobilizing, uh, and this was in the news almost every day in terms of uh, a response to 9-11, and it had been building over a couple of years. The other thing that we have to consider is that the characteristics of the S&P 500, regardless of where we were in terms of a double bottom bear market, the characteristics were very different than where we are today. On a, on a PE multiple basis, the market was not as expensive. It was about three points cheaper than where we were today on a trailing basis. Today is about 21 and a half times trailing earnings. Back then it was 18 and a half. So that, that isn't immaterial. But more importantly, it was also the earnings outlook. The earnings outlook in 2003, at the time of SARS, we saw accelerating earnings growth. So this was still a recovering economy from the 2001 recession. So we had accelerating earnings growth for the S&P 500 at a time when valuation was reasonable. Today, we've had decelerating earnings growth through most of 2019, and it looks to us that it's going to continue when multiples are full. So I would want to see, if we got it, I would want to see uh, a pretty healthy sell-off in this market before I commit. what's new healthy? Capital. So what we're off with as a time 4% from the well, peak? We're, we're, we're flat on the year. On the year, but I on mean the year, we're off on the, the peak, year, yeah. we're off, I think it's like two and a half to 3%. So what would it, what would it have to be from the I peak? would want to see 10 to 15%. I would want to see two to three multiple points taken off. More of a normalization of the multiple back to or near average. Exactly. And signs that we have a reacceleration of earnings growth, which we may be starting to see with the uh, Institute for Supply Management Purchasing Managers Index having come out at 50.9. So now manufacturing, based on this gauge, is, is in expansion again. But is that going to be lasting? Is that going to be impacted by what's going on in China? Is that going to is that a, a one-month blip and it's going to return to a contraction? Or is it sustainable? If it's sustainable and we were to see better valuation in the marketplace, I'd be a buyer. But I, I don't know if I would rush in. At the same time, I don't know if I'd be a hard seller of the market at this point either, because as we've seen in the past, it might not have as much of an impact on U.S. stocks um, as, as some investors might believe, just because it is, it, it is a temporary event. So I was thinking about that on the weekend is like, what's the li- likely investment implications for this? So tell me if you agree or disagree. So I think number one, the thing that impacts is Asian economies. So you like South Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, just because those countries are so tightly connected with uh, the global supply chains. And also when you look at travelers too, the Chinese traveler is big in numbers and they have heavy wallets. So randomly, so last year, roughly there was 10.6 million Chinese travelers that go abroad. So Thailand, for example, 20% of their GDP comes from tourism and nearly half of that comes from the Chinese tourists. So that, they have a potential impact on those economies. We talked about it before, resource-rich countries. So Australia, Chile, Canada, Costa Rica, Child's oils demand in the last basically week has plunged 20%. They are one of the world's largest, I think they are the world's largest importer. Uh, their oil needs are equivalent to France, Germany, Italy, Spain, UK, Japan, and South Korea. So that puts it in perspective. And then last but not least, and this is an investment implication, but countries like Egypt and Pakistan, so that one belt, one row thing that we've seen, all of a sudden you guys spend a lot more money domestically, then you're probably less likely to be spending it on these type of economies. But from your perspective and our model portfolio, probably minimal over a one-year perspective. 
to the points that you raised, I think we have to segment it as well, right? If I don't think we're going to see uh, a, a sharp rebound in the price of oil if you have excess inventory sitting around that wasn't used because oil, if you look at global oil supply, look, it's not coming from China, but China is, is a consumer of it. If they're consuming significantly less over the course of the next month or two months, that's inventory built. Big time. And it will be a while before those inventories are drawn down unless now you have supply disruption, unless you have OPEC stepping in saying, hey, we're going to curtail production to keep the price higher as we know these inventories are going to build. So there are other consequences. Equity market prices are very different than commodity price or commodity supply and demand. Copper, same thing. Now, if China is importing much less copper over the first quarter, well, guess what? That's copper that's going to be stockpiled. That's going to keep the price fairly low for a while, which you know changes our thesis on on uh, oil prices and its potential impact for the Canadian stock market. Uh, changes our thesis on commodity prices and, and with respect to copper and, and what it could mean for the miners. So, using history as a guide, so the CEO for Tech Resources came out. And he said that if coronavirus follows the pattern of SARS in, in terms of just the impact on the commodity markets, he says, and whether it's actual or not, it's the perception of commodities demand, that he said that it typically takes anywhere between three and six months for that to recover. So I just thought that was interesting. His point of view, if this follows the same thing, it's going to be a second half of the year type of rebound from the commodities perspective. We had the belief that earnings were going to be slow to negative in probably the first half of uh, 2020 and then rebound in the second half. And perhaps this delays that that rebound in earnings growth as um, corporations that were just uh, making expectations based on known uh, demand and quantities of their their goods uh, now have to reevaluate, especially those that are are impacted uh, from demand from China. So luxury good provider uh, providers, um, uh, technology companies, uh, consumer discretionary. You have uh, airlines. You have so many of these companies that are, are their earnings are actually may be actually destructive or, or uh, have feel destructive versus actually disruptive, um, and those might not uh, come back uh, because there's no pent up demand for travel. It's like okay, I didn't go to Lunar New Year. I'm not going. You know, in three months, I'm just not going to travel this year. And that we saw with uh, in 2010. Uh, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it but the icelandic volcano that erupted yeah but you're sent- icelandic aren't you supposed to be able to pronounce <laughs> it's got 47 letters in its name i can't even begin to, you know, i don't even know where to start with that uh but if you look at that it, that was very disruptive to uh, the airline industry in europe where they had to shut down flights it impacted uh travel leisure it impacted also uh business uh shipments that went uh, pharmaceuticals, for example, that are you know, the shipments of pharmaceuticals are very time sensitive in some cases, and you have to get them to market quickly. Uh, and so that was in pockets, I would say, destructive. And the same thing as Kevin, you mentioned, you know, if if you stop flights within China or between China and other countries, it doesn't mean that you're going to have all of a sudden an abundance of flights as we have a finite number of planes available in, in the world. Um, so that in that case, it's a little bit more of a delay. If we get sector specific or if we get uh, company specific, then yes, you know, airline stocks are probably not going to rebound in terms of earnings growth. They'll just go back to normal, right? So you, you'll have a one quarter blip, perhaps a two quarter blip of a decline in earnings before you get back to normal, which will adjust then 
yeah, expectations on on why, what does this mean in terms of the company's uh, profits? What does the company have to do in face of that profit decline for that quarter? Do they have to take other measures to try and offset that and so on? What it keeps coming back to is that, look, this is probably going to pose some challenges in the first half of 2020. What we've seen in the past, if we're right, and this is disruptive and not destructive, and if things don't escalate to to the proportions of a global pandemic, then it's it's kind of stay the course, right? And we might hit a rough patch through the first half of 2020. We do. We're just starting to see some of those signs that the global economy could be bottoming. That Chinese the China economy looked like it was bottoming and potentially starting to recover. Okay, maybe that's delayed for a quarter or two. The U.S. manufacturing that came in positive for the month of January. Maybe that's going to dip back negative for, for another quarter before that recovery really starts to take hold. So it doesn't necessarily change our outlook. It delays it by a quarter, perhaps two, but I would say largely stay the course. Yeah, I've been using an analogy for, for probably um, maybe four or five months now and talking about you know being winter, talking about thin ice and, and Looking at uh, Philip, as you mentioned earlier, uh, valuations being being full and perhaps not a, uh, you know uh, foolish, but still full. When valuations are elevated or to the top end of their their full range, it doesn't take much to crack that thin ice. And you know it's it's hard to predict what is going to crack it. And I don't think that's the goal is to trying to determine what cracks it, but be pro- uh, protected against potential cracks. And you know, we've been defensive in our model portfolio since uh, mid last year, and perhaps some people would say that's foolish as the market rallied quite strongly. But overall, I think you know, as you see markets get to uh, uh, higher levels in valuation and perhaps the fundamentals don't support it, uh, it makes sense to go more balanced approach in case that you do see some short-term exogenous shocks from wherever they may be, but you're still protected in the short term. So I don't know when we did it, but we were talking about quotes was that like late last year quotes that we live by or something like that? Yeah, let's call it uh, uh, early last year or late 2018. So I remember I said this one back then, and I think it's even more relevant now. And it's by Benjamin Graham, who, for those who aren't aware, is basically Warren Buffett's teacher. So he's like, I guess, the, the Yoda, if you're watching The Mandalorian. <laughs> but anyways, so Benjamin Graham baby, said... Baby Yoda or... What's that? Baby Yoda or... Yeah, <laughs> I guess... So Benjamin Graham said, in the old legend, the wise man finally boiled down the history of mortal affairs into a single phrase. And that single phrase was, this too will pass. And I think there's going to be a lot of headline news around it over the next couple of months and quarters. But I think when we look back in a year, and we probably go into the summer and coronavirus won't even be on the front page. Hopefully it's not on the front pages. Uh, And if it takes the example, like history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. And if this goes the same shape of history, then... Uh, it's going to be very short-term in nature and will be just a footnote that we'll talk about when the next virus comes in 20 years of, oh, let's compare it to coronavirus of 2020. So I think that's how we need to put it into perspective. So let's let's wrap this up here. I think a couple of things, a couple of key takeaways is one, if we have to answer the question, uh, could this increase the risk of recession in 2020? Yes, it could. Yeah, but does sure. it increase it meaningfully? At this point in time, the answer is no. We still think the risk of recession in the United States and globally would be well below 50% at this point. Uh, what it does, though, it, it is disruptive to economic growth. We are definitely, I think it's very easy to say that we're going to see a weaker 
economic growth in the first quarter of 2020 in China. We're probably or likely to see weaker economic growth in countries most sensitive to China, which could be Germany, South Korea, Japan. It could impact the U.S. uh, economic numbers for the first quarter as well. What does this mean for earnings growth? Well, again, it's probably going to delay that reacceleration of earnings growth that that we were just starting to see the signs of a reacceleration of the manufacturing activity, which leads earnings growth, which would have said earnings growth reacceleration is likely to come in the back half of 2020, certainly into 2021. Uh, maybe it won't be as strong as we thought. You know, maybe it won't be uh, as timely as we thought, but this does put in a delay. Bringing this back to our model portfolio, as you said, Kevin, we were shifting defensively earlier last year. We weren't shifting defensively because of any health scare, nor would we do that today. But we were doing it in the context of the opportunity set in front of us, meaning markets in the United States fully valued, other areas of, of around the world fair to fully valued with weaker earnings growth. As long as that scenario remains, we're going to remain defensive. If, as I mentioned, if we did see a correction, and maybe this is uh, the, the difference between the catalyst and the cause. If this is the catalyst to a correction, to adjust valuation to, to relative earnings expectations, I potentially would be a buyer of that. But if this is, uh, if the markets see through this and stay where they are, and we don't see that earnings reacceleration, I'm going to remain defensive. Either case, I don't think I would I would react in any kind of knee-jerk fashion to what's going on. Wait for the fundamentals to support it. So fundamentals right now would say, yes, in our view, be a little bit more defensive within equities uh, until we get better valuation or better earnings growth. And that could be delayed on the earnings side, could be accelerated on the valuation side as a result of this. So stay the course. The positioning in midsummer last year was we saw a weak earnings environment. We saw a fundamental earnings environment for the second half of 2019. And that played out. But the markets rallied on multiple expansion because of loose monetary policy and a trade resolution. So as we sit here today, and again, with the model portfolio, the fundamental environment still looks mediocre with risk to the downside now. Earnings flat, mediocre, with risk to the downside, and valuations are still at elevated levels. So, um, still very comfortable with the model portfolio positioning for that investor that is from a one year perspective. But I think we all agree that if we were to get a material sell off, one greater than 10%, then we would be uh, increasing our equity weight back up into at least a balance 60 40. Because, not like taking it all back yeah fundamentals are weak earnings are weak but they're not recessionary and that's the key to look forward as we watch all this data going forward is how is this having an impact on fundamentals kevin last word i think you touched that perfectly uh, philip really stay the course uh, i think there's no need for dangerous reaction and uh, keep in tune as this unfolds and we'll see uh, the impact uh, afterwards it's always easier to look back uh, than trying to predict the future as I said at the beginning, you know, we might not have all the answers, but the questions are certainly worth discussing. And this, I think, is a very important question, one that's been on the minds of, of our, 
our clients uh, and partners as we work through this, trying to get a hold of what this could mean. Um, there are many, many variables and, and potential outcomes to this, but we would say, I think, if we did draw on history, don't look at any one point in time, try and piece together almost like a quilt of events that are reminiscent of what we've gone through, not only just in terms of health scares, but other economic disruptions, what we've seen in other market environments that perhaps are similar to this, and that guides us to to perhaps the potential outcome, which in this case is not the worst case scenario. It's actually a reasonable case scenario, but that doesn't suggest one way or the other that you should, again, make any kind of knee-jerk reactions to our portfolios, we focus on the fundamentals. The improvements in the fundamentals may be delayed by a quarter or two, but don't seem to be permanently impaired. This has been Investments Unplugged. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investments to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investments and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife Mutual Funds are managed by Manulife Investments, a division of Manulife Asset Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and perspectives before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed, their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede know your client suitability, needs analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.